the NBA's return to play was in part about Black Lives Matter, uh, social justice messaging. Uh, and that became like a huge part of the NBA, really, in a way that I think was unprecedented in American sports history. The players deserve the credit because it was a condition of them coming back. You know, the moment demanded it. The players, a lot of them, would start every press conference, every media availability they had talking about some social justice, racial justice cause. Like they'd get their first question and say, okay, before I get into that, and they would talk about Breonna Taylor. Then they progressed as we got closer to the election with voting becoming their, their major issue. And they were a little bit embarrassed because the media doing their research said, these guys are going to tell us to vote. 20% of them are registered to vote. And Chris Paul, as president of the Players Association, took it upon himself and very quickly, like within days, 90% of the players were registered to vote. Half of the teams had 100% registration to vote. It is my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, one of the smartest men in basketball, current NBA on TNT analyst, fresh from the bubble, Mr. Stan Van Gundy. Welcome, Stan. I'm honored, to say the least, to be with you. Uh, you know, followed your presidential campaign, love all your ideas, and as I've told you before we got on here, I'm intimidated as hell. <laughs> We have a, in basketball, Andrew, in basketball, NBA, we're always looking for matchups. We always look at matchups. And in terms of intellect, this is such a mismatch that I know I'm the matchup that gets picked on. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding? We're here to pick your brains, Dan, because you've had an epic uh, career and run that obviously, you know, like still has a, a ways to go. Um, I, I have a couple of NBA related questions or a, a number, but to give you a sense of my background, uh, like I grew up a huge Knicks fan. And so my first, uh, exposure to you and your family was through your brother, Jeff, when like Jeff Van Gundy becomes the Knicks head coach, which I'm sure was a very proud moment for you with your entire family. You're like, Oh my gosh, my little brother just became like the, the, like the head coach of the Knicks where you have this glamor franchise, you know, Pat Riley, uh, Pat Riley steps down. Uh, he tries to bring Jeff with him. And then the Knicks say no way. And then, then he ends up giving you a call being like, all right, like, uh, let me get uh, another Van Gundy. So you join your brother, Jeff, in the NBA. Uh, and then Don Nelson gets fired and Jeff becomes a freaking NBA head coach. And I was a huge Knicks fan during that time. And I was like, Jeff Van Gundy, like our, our head coach. And the the deck was stacked against him. Because he was kind of a no-name. He hadn't like had a huge basketball playing career, clearly, and the rest of it. <laughs> but he uh, but he just performed so well as coach that as a Knicks fan, like I fell in love with him and those teams. New York fell in love with him. I remember chant them chanting his name, like Jeff Van Gundy. Uh and his his leadership and coaching skill were just undeniable. And so he became like one of the most beloved coaches. 
uh, in Nick's history. And then you became, you know, an assistant coach of the Heat and wound up having an incredible arc yourself. So just so you know, like that's where I'm coming from, where I have I have a reverence for both you and your brother and everything that you've done for the NBA. Well, I appreciate that. And as long as we stay on basketball, I'm on comfortable ground. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, for you guys, too, one of the reasons I love your family story is your dad's a college coach. And I remember when I was reading about uh, your brother Jeff's choices where he transferred from Yale to Nazareth College to be able to play. Um, and I'm Asian, you might have noticed. And so I feel like if there was like an like if there was an Asian kid who said, hey, I'm going to transfer from Yale to Nazareth to play D3 basketball, <laughs> like, like a parents would be like, in your family's case, I feel like you all understood because basketball was so deep in your blood. Yeah, well, and actually he really bounced around. So he had gone to Yale to play basketball and 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 he'll tell you. You know, they get certain preferred slots, the athletic teams do, in the Ivy League. Now, you still have to meet minimum standards. Um, So he got one of their preferred slots. So that's how he got into Yale. But then it didn't work out basketball-wise. So it's even worse, Andrew, than going to Nazareth College to begin with. He transferred to a junior college in California to maintain his eligibility and went to Minlo Junior College. It's now a four-year school, but he went there for a year. Then he came back and played for my father at Brockport State in New York. Um, and then my dad, you know, at that level, you you do both. You teach and coach at the Division three level. And so my dad got caught in faculty layoffs. He could have still coached, but you can't make a living like that. And so when he left to take another job, my brother went to Nazareth. So he went to four schools in five years and, um, yeah, bounced around. And it was funny. I mean, you don't leave Yale. You just don't leave Yale. But it worked out pretty well for him. The decision doesn't look as bad in retrospect as it might have looked at the time. So when did you know you wanted to be a basketball coach? Like you and your brother, no offense, but you're not exactly like towering human beings. <laughs> so so I, I have this image in my mind's eye of you guys both being fairly normal sized uh, youngsters in high school playing guard uh, at the high school level. And you obviously both love the game deeply. Like when did you and Jeff both know, you know what, I'm going to, to uh, coach basketball or be in basketball for the rest of my life? Yeah, I think it's probably the same for him, but for me, for sure, I, I don't ever remember really seriously ever wanting to do anything else. Um, you know, certainly when I was a kid, you know, I actually thought I was, you know, I wanted to be a baseball player. And then when you're 13 and you hit under 100, you say, okay, that's probably not going to take place. So from then on, I remember flirting, thinking about law and uh, journalism for a little bit, but the only thing I ever really focused on, even from the time, say, I was 14 or 15, was coaching basketball. And I think the reason is, um, you know, my dad coached at the high school, small college, junior college levels his whole career and loved every day of it. I mean, he he will say to people all the time that he never worked a day in his life. I mean, he was one of those lucky people who loved what he was doing. And when you grow up in a household where you see somebody, you know, loving what they're doing every day, you, you, you know, you just, I think subconsciously say, 
wow, that looks really cool. Like he's having a lot of fun. I'll do that. And so, and then we were lucky not only to be around him, but, you know, most of his friends were coaches, basketball or even other sports. And so we were around it a lot and it really looked like a great thing to do. You know, it sounds a little bit like growing up in a family business where you just end up absorbing or internalizing uh, the energy of the family business and then going and getting another kind of job uh, just seems kind of uh, dull by, by comparison because, uh, you know, you're, it's not drawing on uh, so many parts of yourself as the family business does. Uh, and it's true when you get that at, at a young age. Um, it's hard to do something else. I, I feel like you dodged a bullet by not becoming a lawyer or journalist. <laughs> no offense to those fields. I mean, obviously they're great fields and the rest of it. Uh, so you play uh, basketball, I want to say for your dad um, at the college level uh, at a school that's not, you know, like super, uh, I don't think it was D1, was it? No, it's one of the state schools in New York, Division Three. That's my level. <laughs> that was my level. So you go from there and then you become an assistant coach and then a head coach at various schools uh, and become the head coach at Wisconsin, which is a D1 program. That must have felt like um, like an incredible journey in itself uh, when when they said, hey, Stan, like here, here's your contract to become the head coach at, at Wisconsin. Yeah, I, look, I mean, my career has just been one of tremendous luck. Um, and, and I don't mean that. I'm not trying to be, you know, over overly modest or anything, but um, I've been in the right place at the right time and gotten a lot of breaks. When I came out of college, I knew I wanted to coach and I had a division three background and I looked around and, you know, I would see these division three schools that were great schools and really nice campuses, place to live, good program. And I'd say, wow, if I could ever get one of those jobs, if I could ever you know, when I was 50 years old, rise to that level, I'll be happy. And then, you know, you just circumstances come up and you get these incredible chances to advance. Um, and at Wisconsin, I was working for Stu Jackson, who's another former Knicks head coach. Um, he was the head coach and he moved on to take the general manager's job for what was then the Vancouver Grizzlies. And we were really involved in recruiting a great in-state player in Wisconsin. And I got the Wisconsin job basically because they wanted to make sure that they got Sam Oakey. And so I was in the right place at the right time. Now, they fired me uh, within a year. So it wasn't all good, but it was still a great opportunity. And then even them firing me, they happened to fire me at what you talked about earlier, you know, a couple months after that, Pat Riley left the Knicks, couldn't bring my brother with him and hired me. So even my timing on getting fired was impeccable and got me into the NBA. I've just hit it. I've hit it right every time. So you wind up an assistant coach at the Miami Heat and you were like, wow, I'm in the NBA now. Uh, like, like, what, 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 what was that transition like um, for you and your family? I think at that time you're already like a family man, right? You have like um, uh, a wife and, and kids at that point. Yeah, we had two at that point. My daughter was almost four and my son had not turned quite a year old when we got to Miami. And, you know, it, it was overwhelming at first. I mean, I was in awe. I, I'll never forget, Andrew, we got down there and, and Pat had a um, 
free agent camp. You know, we were sort of looking for into the roster guys. And so we had this free agent camp, probably 30 players there, um, fringe NBA guys. And I'm watching them, you know, play and we're running this camp. And I'm saying, I've never been in a gym with this much talent. And none of these guys are even NBA players. I And I'm blown away by how good everybody was. And I'll never forget because then we go to lunch after the first session and I'm hyped up, man. Here I am. I'm in the NBA. It's my first day. And we sit down to lunch and we had a veteran assistant named Scotty Robertson and we're sitting at the table. And as soon as Pat sat down, Scotty looked at him and he said, well, there's nobody here that can help us. And he just blew away 30 guys out of the most talented group of players that I had ever been in a gym with. And I remember thinking, oh, you're in a whole new world now. <laughs> wow. You're like, wow, I'm glad I kept my mouth shut until he said that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I would have, I would have my list of like 12 guys that I really liked. <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So you're an assistant coach. You become the head coach of the Heat. You have a, a lot of success. You then become... I want to say coach of the year and the the magic, uh, take them to the finals. You actually, you pioneered um, like a four out system where I remember that year you, you got the magic to the finals. It was Dwight Howard and a bunch of shooters. Uh, and that ended up um, presaging this whole revolution in the NBA. I don't think it really fully took after that finals team where shooting mattered as much as, as uh, it does today, but you certainly set off a whole new trend uh, with that finals team. Yeah. I mean, I think it was us and Mike D'Antoni's teams in Phoenix. Um, you know, with us, I'd like to take credit for being an innovative genius I, because that would be a nice thing to have after your name. But 
in reality, again, uh, we sort of hit it lucky. And and I I think about I thought about this a few years ago. I was listening. Uh, Michael Lewis gave a commencement address at Princeton, and it was on the role of luck. And in our case, in in Orlando, we came in and we probably would have played pretty conventionally. But Tony Batie, who would have been our starting power forward next to Dwight Howard, got hurt in pickup games even before training camp started, and he was going to be out the year. And so we just didn't really have a lot of choices. So we were going to play Richard Lewis and Hito Turkoglu together as our forwards. Neither one of them was, was a power forward at a time when teams had big, strong power forwards. But we just didn't have a lot of choices. And so... We decided to play them together and to make it work the best we could. And it ended up being fantastic. We won 52 games that first year, 59 the second year, and went to the finals. Um, and again, it was, you know, the saying necessity is the mother of invention. That's what it was. Like, this is what we have. How do we make the best of it? And we ended up with something better than we would have had had Tony not gotten hurt. And there's definitely an important lesson there, which is have your power forward get hurt in a pickup game now. <laughs> so, so you have this incredibly successful run with the Magic, and uh, you became one of the most highly sought-after free agents, uh, coaching-wise, um, at the end of that run. And I, I want to say that like the choice for you was between the Golden State Warriors and the Detroit Pistons. At least I think. Uh, like I don't. I mean, this is just from the outside looking in. Um, were you at all close to to heading west uh, and joining Golden State uh, before you ended up committing to the Pistons? Well, no, but but here's what happened. I was I was far along in the process with the Pistons. Um, as a matter of fact, had uh, had already gotten to the point where they had offered me the job when the Warriors called and wanted to talk, and I just had one meeting with the Warriors, uh, never got offered the job. Uh, and we were far, far along with Detroit and um, very happy with that situation. I've had a lot of people say, you know, oh, you should have waited and see what happened with Golden State. But I don't have any regrets whatsoever. And I'm a guy who, you know, like you talked about growing up a Knicks fan. I grew up in the Bay Area and I was a huge Warriors fan, you know, and I was in high school when Rick Barry led the 75 Warriors to the championship. And so the chance to go coach your hometown team would have been exciting. But again, we just, they were at different points in their process. And I decided, you know, I like the situation in Detroit. I'm glad that I took that opportunity um, and would have liked to have won more games, but I, I'm thankful for the experience. I spent a lot of time in Detroit, and there's something very, very special about what's going on in that city. I mean, you were a huge part of it. You were the president of uh, the Pistons. Um, did you and your family, uh, I mean, you must have lived there in Michigan and then maybe had like a summer home in, in I'm guessing, Florida. Like, was that the, the living situation? Actually, yeah, we kept our um, home in central Florida when we when we went to Detroit, but we lived up there full time. Um you know, at the time we got there, the arena, the palace was north of the city. So we lived up there because that's where the in practice the facility yeah. was and everything else. But but we did get into Detroit 
a lot. Um, Detroit's a great city in a number of ways, but it, what it really is, it's a, as far as for fun, what we loved is it, it's a great music city. It is a great concert city. And so between an amphitheater up next to us, um, the DTE, it used to be, they used to call it Pine Knob, famous place up there. Um, they had the Pistons actually owned two other amphitheaters and then the Fox Theater downtown and the Paramore and the Detroit Opera House. I mean, in the off season, I don't know, Andrew, maybe two or three times a week, my wife and I were at at concerts and down in the city. I had season tickets to the Tigers, season tickets to the Lions. Um, we loved Detroit and the people there are outstanding people. Um, yeah, we, we had a great four years there. And I've still got two kids that live in Michigan. My daughter works at the University of Michigan. My son's in grad school at uh at Wayne State, and we still um, support congressional candidates out there. We're, uh, we supported a district attorney candidate. Like, I still care about the city of Detroit and the state of Michigan and, you know, trying to make a contribution now. Yeah, it has that effect on you. I still care about it, too. Uh, I started a nonprofit that started operating in Detroit in 2012. I've been there every year since uh, 2010. And we started working with Dan Gilbert very closely uh, with my organization. So he owns the Cavs. Doesn't, people don't really think of him as a Detroit guy, but you know, he's like Mr. Detroit. Um, his uh, operations there are the anchor of the downtown area. Uh, so uh, I actually had some fun visiting him in his Detroit HQ where he has, he's a huge NBA fan, obviously owning the Cavs. So um, he had like a a basketball court in the office building and there's like sports paraphernalia all, 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 all over the place. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep Let's you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So you were the president of basketball operations at the Pistons, and that that model has kind of fallen out of favor, uh, where now people look at it and say, I don't know if one human being can do these jobs because uh, they're, they're very disparate jobs. Um, 
do you think that that model is gone for good where like no like it's just it's like inadvisable to task someone with both gming and monitoring all the talent and transactions and contracts and all the rest of it um and coaching or do you think that could work if you know like if it was uh the right situation an individual yeah that's that's a great question i i've, I've said this to people um every time i've i've talked about that i said first of all it's the only model that has always worked. Uh, so teams become at some point, you know, teams have become disenchanted with it. But if you look at what came before and what came after when that person had both jobs, the teams have always gotten better and usually pretty significantly. So, you know, it's the only model, it's a, it's a small sample size, I understand, but it's the only model that has led to improvement every single time. Now, I think, and this is how it I sort of got into it, I think you're best still with having two people, you know, having somebody who's really focused on building the roster and taking a long view, because coaches take a short view. You know, how are we going to win tonight? And the general manager's got to take the long view. So I think you're better but you need alignment in your organization. You need everybody to be on the same page. And so what happened in my situation, Andrew, is they had a headhunter um, calling. And, you know, I remember I'm sitting on my back porch here in uh, Lake Mary, Florida, and I get a call and the guy says, this is so-and-so and, you know, calling to see if you'd be interested in coaching the Detroit Pistons. And I said, absolutely not. And he said, why not? I said, well, that's where coaches go to die. And they had had incredible turnover. And I said, no, I'm not interested in that at all. And then he called back a day or two later and said, would you have interest in doing both jobs? I had never thought about doing the executive part of it. It wasn't really what necessarily inter interested me. But I knew if you had one person doing both jobs, the one thing you would have is great alignment. You know, I, I didn't yeah. anticipate. <laughs> yeah, you just have yeah. to talk to yourself. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. And now there were times, I will admit, where our president, me, wanted to fire our coach, me. Um, but but at least the president never followed through on that. So uh, so we made it through. <laughs> that would be funny. Be, be like, hey, you've got some news. I mean, for myself. <laughs> Now, so you had years of evaluating various prospects, making very big investments where, you know, if you decide to draft someone or give someone a free agent deal, uh, you know, it was a very big commitment. Um, was there, a, do you have recollection of someone who you just, for whatever reason, passed on or underestimated that wound up being very successful in the league? And you're like, wow, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> like, I, I, I didn't, like, I didn't think that person actually had what it... Uh, had this or that. Um, I'm just curious because it, it feels like that that evaluative process is such like a huge component of um, making a, a team successful. Yeah, I, I think, Andrew, you could maybe get um, 10 Pistons fans on here and um, they could definitely answer that question for you on uh, people that I passed up on that became very good. And to be quite honest, um, and, and certainly nothing against any of the guys that we did select, but um, the main reason I ended up losing my job in Detroit, at least in my mind, 
is that we just didn't hit on the draft. I thought we did a pretty good job. Free agents, we did a really good job on trades. Um, I thought we coached the team well. And over our four years, um, we won about nine to 10 more games a year than they had in the previous five years. So we did improve it. But the draft, I mean, we missed on, we missed in consecutive years, and, and there's probably more guys in this, but we moved missed on Devin Booker, who's become an all-star um, out of Kentucky. And we missed on Karis Levert, who hasn't been an all-star, but if he, if he can stay healthy, and that's actually the reason we passed on him, but if he can stay healthy is going to be great. And then we missed on um, Donovan Mitchell, who was picked one pick after us. And so... You know, you're not going to hit them all in the draft. There's just no chance. Nobody does. The best personnel people in the league don't. Um, but when you come into a tough situation anyway, and we came into a very weak roster to begin with, the draft becomes even more important. You can't afford to miss. And and we bypass some, uh, some really good players. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I don't want to be in that role again. I mean, if I ever get another <laughs> chance in the NBA, I just want to coach. That I'm very confident I can do. Um, that trying to project guys three and four years out is hard. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, so to the extent that you've been around people who um, – and you're 100% right. Every team in the league, their fans can go over who their team drafted and who they quote unquote should have drafted. And like, there's no team's fans in the league that are like, oh, you know, <laughs> like our, our people are um, are perfect. Uh, to the extent that there are folks who have that projection ability, like what, what do you think that, uh, that gives someone the ability to visualize what someone can do in the league? Um, uh and as someone who is a long-suffering Knicks fan, I mean, certainly, um, whatever, whatever, whatever you're, you know, you're about to describe, <laughs> like, hopefully, they, they could spread it around the New York metro area. Well, you know, I think it's this. I think that number one, it's experience, um, because one thing I noticed, you know, with these scouts who have been at it a long time, right? So here, here's the one. As a Knicks fan, this probably maybe a sore point since you traded him, but I remember being over in Spain, and we had gone over um, to see Kristaps Porzingis. Um, it was Porzingis's year and Mario Hazonia, who the Magic ended up drafting. It was their year, and we went over there to see them. And there were a lot of people that, you know, were unsure about Porzingis, who's obviously very talented. But the veteran scouts, and especially the people who had scouted in Europe a lot, they were comparing Kristaps Porzingis to Pau Gasol when Pau Gasol was 18. And so I would hear people argue with them because there were people who said, yeah, I think he's going to be as good as Pau Gasol. And, you know, people who didn't have that length of experience were saying, he's not going to Pau Gasol. Pau Gasol was a great player. And in their mind, they were comparing an 18-year-old Kristaps Porzingis with a 30-year-old Pau Gasol. Well, of course, Pau Gasol is a lot better. But those veteran scouts over in Europe were comparing 18-year-old Kristaps Porzingis to 18-year-old Pau Gasol. So I think experience is number one. And I also just think there's people who have a very clear vision of 
what's going to work? What type of psychological attributes and work ethic and body types and skill sets and what can be developed and what can't be developed? Um, the best I've ever seen, I've said it before, um, there's a guy that nobody knows his name in the NBA with the Miami Heat, Chet Kammerer, was the director of player personnel for a long time. Now he's more of a consultant. And, you know, he's hit on so many guys, Udonis Haslam, uh, Mike James, and now you look at their team and, you know, Duncan Robinson, maybe the best three-point shooter in the league, Kendrick Nunn, first-team all-rookie. Those guys weren't even drafted. Out of nowhere, just freaking, like, like pick them up. Like, uh, not off the street, because obviously those guys are working very hard, <laughs> but, but, but they're like, there's no asset involved. They're like undrafted free agents that you just developed with a two-way contract uh, or, or um, the G League. No, but that's Chet. I mean, Chet's been a guy that throughout the entire time, last 25 years of the Heat, he's consistently found guys like that. And nobody knows his name. He's never been or even wanted to be a general manager. What he doesn't want to do the contracts and the negotiations. He wants to just evaluate players. And with like with Duncan Robinson, I know he told Eric Spolstra, this is the best shooter in the end in the this is the best shooter in the world not playing in the NBA right now. So then they get him and then they develop him in the G League and the whole thing. So um yeah, I, I've, I've always said if you can find guys who get a lot more right than they get wrong, the, you want to pay them a lot of money and hang on to them because it's a hard thing to do. In a lot of cases, it's hit and miss, but they've been far above average. San Antonio Spurs, you know, drafting Ginobili in the second round, drafting, you know, Tony Parker late in the first round. They've been able to do it. Um, and when you can do that, you know, your organization is going to have sustained success over time, um, but it's hard, really hard. I, I found myself rooting for this Heat team because they were comprised of folks like Duncan Robinson, who kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, so I was running for president in New Hampshire, uh, which is where Duncan is from, and I would run into uh, people who would tell me all about Duncan Robinson when I was on the trail. He actually went to the same high school I did, too. So it was like Duncan Robinson. I was like... Wow. I mean, rightfully proud. I mean, freaking guys in the NBA, but then he became, uh, you know, cult hero and playoff hero uh, out of nowhere. Like like um, you and Jeff uh, started out in D3. He started out at Williams College and then he ended up transferring uh, um, to a D1 school and then, you know, went undrafted. Um, so the, the, the organizations that perform at a high level in, in those roles, like you, at least I find myself rooting for because you kind of like people who do more with less. Um, and then there are the franchises who seem to do less with more. Andrew, that people don't pay enough attention to as a reason for those teams success is we just mentioned Miami and San Antonio. They've had tremendous continuity and stability within their organization. So Eric Spolster has been with the heat for 25 years Pat Riley's been with the Heat for 25 years. Um, all, you know, their assistant coaches, their, you know, their vice president, or he might even be president now, Andy Ellisberg, 26 years. I mean, everybody's been there. And they've been through 
some tough times. I mean, I've heard I've heard people say, well, yeah, of course they didn't fire anybody. They always win. That's not true. Going into this year, the Heat had missed the playoffs three out of the last five years, but they weather the ups and downs. And what that continuity allows them to do is they know the types of players that they do well with and will win with. And they just stick with it. If they're doing things right, they realize there's a lot of factors you can't control, injuries, everything else. And you're going to have to weather. Nobody gets them all right. You're going to have to weather some bad decisions, but we're going to keep on going. San Antonio has done it with more success, but they've had great consistency because Greg Popovich has been there for 25 years. Uh, And then the Utah Jazz have had three head coaches in my time in the league, Jerry Sloan, Ty Corbin, and now Quinn Snyder. They've had great stability. And again, there's an organization that after Malone and Stockton have had ups and downs, but they stay the course. And, you know, you'll hear it all the time. I don't care if it's sports and business that, you know, you've got to focus on process over outcome. And if your processes are right, eventually outcome will be good. If you take shortcuts to get an outcome right away, you know, it won't sustain. And yet in pro sports, so few teams, not just in the NBA, but elsewhere, so few teams embrace, you know, continuity and stability. And and I think that's one of the big problems. And I think it's one of the reasons those teams have done what they've done. The continuity and stability give rise to a real culture as well, uh, which is impossible if you just keep swapping out uh, leaders and philosophies because then you show up and be like, I don't know what this organization or this team or this company stands for. Uh, Whereas if if there are some constant principles uh, that you can keep sticking to, uh, then it actually helps, like you said, identify folks who belong in your organization and don't. Um, Just the fact that you can say like, hey, this is a Miami Heat player is an incredibly good sign for that franchise. You know, you know, like you, if you could say that about uh, someone, then your organization is probably going to overperform. And that's true of business too. You've really successful startups that invest in having a strong team culture, and then you can identify fit um, more quickly and powerfully. Where if you've got a really high functioning org and someone doesn't fit, they tend to get rejected like a you know a virus like that you put the person there and then like they'll be out of there in <laughs> like a few months, uh, and and that's actually not a bad thing necessarily. That in some ways can be a very good sign. Well, I agree with you, and and um, you know first of all, I think it's easier in terms of your recruitment. If like if you're in the NBA, who are we gonna you know try to sign? Who are we gonna draft? Because you know the kind of people you're looking for, and that will eliminate some people who might be really talented, but they're not your kind of person, right? And and like you say, like if you go to the Miami Heat, um, I don't care if you're drafted, traded, or go as a free agent, you know the reputation of the place. You know you're going to be held to a high standard in terms of conditioning. You know you're going to work hard. You know, you know all of these things going in. And so, like, if you're a free agent, if you're Jimmy Butler going to the Heat, you know exactly what you're going into. And so you've decided you want to be part of that. And so you're full steam ahead. Um, I just don't know if if you can have that. Like you say, if you don't build it over time and if you're always changing, nobody has any idea who you are and your own scouts don't know, like, 
what are we looking for? Tom Izzo at, the, uh, <laughs> at Michigan State, Andrew, he has a thing on his recruiting board. And at the top, it says, OKG. And you ask him what it stands for. And it says, our kind of guys. That's who they're looking for. Like, And you'll hear him say it. And you'll hear the people with the Miami Heat say it. We're not for everybody. You know, they don't hold an air against that. They can just take anybody and make them great. No, no. We need our kind of guys. And that's what they go looking for. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a big competitive edge uh, for those organizations because if you don't know what you stand for, then no one else is going to know what you stand for. <laughs> you know, it, it even, I mean, even if you're hammering it, it's like it's hard to actually stand for the thing you say you're going to stand for, much less if you don't know what it is. You have been broadcasting out of the bubble for the last number of months. Uh, congrats on making it out of the bubble. Um, I, I got the sense that that for you, the bubble was a stone's throw away from where you generally live, right? So at least they had that going for it. <laughs> like that, there was some familiar aspects. Yeah, I, mean, I was 40 minutes from home. Uh, it was, yeah, the, the weather, all that was familiar. In some ways, it was harder, though, you know, because I knew I'm just 40 minutes away. You know, why... Why am I not having dinner with my wife? And, you know, I'm down here for seven weeks. But, um, you know, some of the people, I mean, my brother was there for three months because I was out after the second round of the playoffs. He was there from start all the way through the finals. I think he got out twice briefly. They let him go home, come back in quarantine and get in. But for the most part, maybe for other than about five days total, he was gone for three months and he still has a daughter in high school. And, you know, it was really, really difficult. Um, and the players and coaches were in an even more restrictive environment and they were there for a long time. And, you know, a lot of those guys have young kids and everything else. I mean, it was just really hard. And, and I think it was a mental health challenge for, for a lot of people. I mean, it, three months of being, basically isolated and it was tough and they were all smart enough, right? Nobody was really complaining about it because I think they all, they all know the reality. You're making millions of dollars. Nobody's going to feel sorry for you. And, but the amount of money you're making doesn't have anything to do with the fact it's not going to help you get through being separated from your family for a long time, not having your friends around, not having the freedom to move around. I mean, they were literally in one compound for three months. Now, granted, treated very well and everything. It was a pleasant fishbowl, but a fishbowl nonetheless. It's nonetheless, like, who wants to be stuck exactly in a fishbowl? Right. It would yeah. be like being in um, what people call, you know, where a lot of white collar, uh, you know, criminals go. They call them uh, club fed. Yeah, like country. Yes, club fed, country club prisons. And I always say, yeah, that may be, but you still can't leave. And that's what these players we're going through it. And, and these guys, Andrew, as you know, I mean, you're young, you have a lot of money, you have the ultimate freedom. I mean, you can go wherever you want, you can get into any event, you can hop on a private plane. So they go from having the ultimate freedom to you literally stay in, in one small area for three months. Uh, I really uh, admire the players for what they were able to do and then go out and perform at the level we all watched in the bubble. 
for what it's worth, I understood uh, probably better than uh, than most what the bubble meant um, because I spent months on the road uh, campaigning. And like you said, you're not allowed to ever bitch about it because <laughs> it's like, you know, like like in your case, it's like, yeah, you're a famous pro athlete making millions of dollars, like crying me a river. Uh, you know, in my case, it was like, yeah, you know, you're running for president, like, you know, like cry me a river. Um, but I, I understood what it meant to be away from your family uh, for months continuously, uh, you know, if you have young kids and, and whatnot. I feel like the mental toll it would take on people is woefully underestimated, where I feel feel like it was such a huge part of the bubble. And I saw a story where when they're looking at starting next season, people are like, no way, bubble two, or like, you know, <laughs> like, no, no way we're going to do that again uh, uh, to, to the same extent. Yeah, I, I think it was just really hard. I mean, um, the players did it. And, you know, it's one of those things, I think, obviously they reached agreement, the Players Association with the league to do it. And they did it, I think, for two reasons. One was obviously money, probably the biggest. Um, the players, the owners, everybody stood to lose a lot of money if they didn't come back and play. And so it was for that. But I think it was also to keep the NBA brand in front of people and to entertain the fans and keep them engaged. So they did that and, and they knew what they were getting into, but just as I'm sure you running for president, like you willingly accept the challenges, you sort of know you're gonna be traveling a lot or in their case, staying in the bubble, but until you actually live it, you don't realize how hard that's gonna be. So the NBA is 81% black. The NFL is 68% black. Uh, but the NBA's return to play was in part about Black Lives Matter, uh, social justice messaging. Uh, and that became like a huge part of the NBA, really, in a way that I think was unprecedented in American sports history. Um, was there a sense in returning to the bubble that there was something bigger at play than obviously the money's a big deal, um, like ensuring that there's a champion uh, entertaining people. But how much of the return to play was motivated by a desire to try and do something positive at a time when a lot of the country was struggling? Yeah, look, I, I think the play, you have to give the players all the credit for that. And I'm a big Adam Silver fan in the NBA. And Adam's a very progressive guy and certainly went along with things. But the players deserve the credit because it was a condition of them coming back. You know, the moment demanded it. You know, there's just moments in history. And so while the pandemic locked down United States, America, you know, United States professional sports, um, we had George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery uh, and others. And so the players took up that cause. And a lot of them were going to protests and rallies and speaking and doing all those things anyway. And then the NBA comes along and wants to restart. And there was a lot of discussion among the players of, should we be doing this? Should we be playing basketball at a time like this? Or should we all be home in our communities making an impact, you know, grassroots level? And it took them discussions even among themselves to decide the platform that's provided to us when we play games, the access we have to the media when we're playing games is 
more valuable and can reach a lot more people than we can just staying at home in our communities. I think it was a big part of their decision, number one. And then they said, okay, if we're going to play, let's negotiate with the league. What can we do? You know, and they got, as you said, the messaging on the floor, the messaging on jerseys. And particularly in the early part of the bubble, the players, a lot of them would start every press conference, every media availability they had talking about some social justice, racial justice cause. I could get their first question and say, okay, before I get into that, and they would talk about Breonna Taylor, or they would talk about George Floyd, or they would talk more generally about, you know, police violence, which was really their issue at the beginning. And then it was great to watch them sort of grow as the time went on, Andrew. So then they progressed as we got closer to the election with voting becoming their their major issue. And they were a little bit embarrassed because the media doing their research said, these guys are going to tell us to vote. 20% of them are registered to vote. And Chris Paul as president of the Players Association took it upon himself and very quickly, like within days, 90% of the players were registered to vote. Half of the teams had 100% registration to vote. Um, And then I think because of that, they just kept pushing forward with the voting message. So I personally um, was really proud of them for standing up and sort of forcing the hand on messaging, but then also the growth I saw in the players as time went on. Yeah, I feel like there must have been some real growth opportunities in the bubble. Like, is it terrible being separated from your family for that long? Yes. But I I have a feeling that uh, they might have ended up spending their time in ways that they would not have spent it otherwise, uh, probably making some relationships. Like in your case, you're trapped with Jeff. So <laughs> it's probably the longest time you've been together as like adults and like, uh, you know, especially what, what with the NBA lifestyle. Um, did you see any of that? Did you see some some people... Uh, I, I suppose, I mean, the, the fact that they grew politically is, is enormous. Uh, were there positive aspects of the bubble? Oh, there's no question. You know, I saw people would, you know, put on social media some of the players, like the books they had brought into the bubble that, you know, were regarding racial justice, social justice, economic justice. Um, and then I know there were teams, even while they were in the bubble, uh, doing Zoom calls with people to become educated or even to advocate. I know that, you know, because Steve Clifford's a good friend, I know while Orlando was in the bubble, um, they did a Zoom call with the sheriff of Orange County where all the games were being played. There had been a police shooting um, of a black man at a mall in Florida, and it became controversial because they wouldn't um, immediately release the body cam footage. Um, And so the Magic had a call with him and were able to ask him about that. And they were getting guys involved in the process. And other teams were doing that too. And a lot of it was, they just had a lot of time. All right, you go to practice. You're there for, say, three hours. You don't have a game that day. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, you're not going home and going out to a restaurant with your wife or with your girlfriend or it is. So what are you doing? And I think a lot of players 
really took advantage of it. And, and one of the things I noticed watching almost every game in the bubble and listening to those press conferences is how much more sophisticated the players' messages got politically as time went on. And so you could tell they were becoming more and more informed throughout their time there. Uh, that's not surprising to me. I was in touch with a couple of uh, NBA teams myself uh, while you all were in the bubble. I did a Zoom session. Um, also, just to rewind for a moment, I was an entrepreneurship mentor to the NBA Players Association for the entrepreneurship boot camp that they've had over the last number of years. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I've been kind of an extended um, part of the NBA orbit. Um, and I got the sense that teams were doing a lot to try and have their players have other ways to uh, spend their time, really, and to, and to develop uh, along some of these dimensions of activism. Um, so that was, to me, I mean, obviously, you never wish something like the bubble on anyone. But I, I thought to myself, it's like, oh, I think something positive is going to come out of this. Now... One question that I don't know how many other people are fascinated by this, but I am. Um, so you are uh, interviewing with teams for an NBA coaching job. Uh, you know, you're, again, one of the most prized free agents uh, of NBA coaches out there. What the heck does an NBA coach job interview even look like? Like, I'm just trying to imagine, like, if you brought someone in. Are you expected to have insight into their current players? Is it more about your philosophies? Is it about uh, your chemistry with management? Uh, like, uh, how, how does that process even unfold? Yeah, you know, I've been through a few of these um, and they're all different. They're all really, really different. Um, but it's it's always sitting down with, the, you know, general manager, president, um, whoever it is. And, and a lot of it is philosophically. Now, I, I think it's different um, probably for guys going in for their first head coaching job. Um, I'm sure they get much more into the X's and O's and the, and the strategy and the details. But, you know, if I'm talking to a team now, you have 11 years of watching my teams play. Like you have an idea if you like what you see or not. So, <laughs> so I think it becomes more, um, are we a fit are, are the way I do business and, and operate as a coach? Am I going to fit with what you want in the organization? And again, I think there's, I say to coaches all the time at every level, trying to get jobs. The first thing you have to realize is there's a lot more good coaches than there are jobs. So there's going to be a lot of good coaches out of work at every level, high school, college, the NBA. And you have to, you have to realize that. And then you also have to realize, and this goes to that is, you know, it's not who the best coach is because there's no way to, to determine that, you know, I'm better than the next guy and then the next guy's better than that. You know, I mean, it, it's all subjective. I mean, you have some objective data, but that goes to the talent you have. So it's mainly subjective. And I think what the general managers and front office guys are looking for, you alluded to it talking about a company, you know, developing a culture. And certain people fit into that better than others fit into that. And I think that's the, once you have, uh, once you're interviewing an experienced coach and you sort of have an idea of the abilities, that's what you're trying to figure out. You know, is he going to fit into this culture? Is he what we want 
in that way. Um, at least that's been my experience over the last probably four times I've talked to people. Well, for what it's worth, I'm I'm rooting for you to wind up the Pelicans head coach. Uh, we're, we're friends of, with JJ Redick over here. He is actually a donor to uh, Universal Basic Income Trial uh, that we launched in upstate New York. I have a lot of friends in New Orleans because I just spent a lot of time there uh, as well. So for what it's worth, <laughs> just throwing that out into the the universe. Uh, so you you've endorsed Joe Biden. Um, you and I have connected on a number of political topics uh, that we're both passionate about. And I remember you saw I saw a tweet from you uh, championing local journalism, which I could not agree more with. Uh, universal healthcare and and universal basic income, you think should be on the table now, given the nature of the crisis we're in the midst of. Uh, did you have like a an arc politically? Was it something that you and your family were interested in from a while ago, or or did you just uh, um, start paying more attention more recently? Uh, I've always been engaged. Um, one of the things I admire about the NBA players is they're a lot more active than I was at that age. I was pretty self-centered at that point, worried about my own career. So I think I've been more active, but I was always engaged. I grew up in a, in a you know, my parents are conservative. Um, for me, the arc was, as I was, I was always socially pretty liberal. You know, I, just didn't understand why anybody cared if you were sleeping with somebody of the same sex or what the color of your skin was or any of those things. Um, but I think it, I've certainly had an arc in terms of economic issues. Um, you know, I, I think at one point I was a, um, you know, balance the budget guy um, and still am to a degree. My, the difference between me and, and conservatives would probably be I'd, I'd raise taxes and bring in more money so we could help more people. Um, but recently, right before you started running for president, so these two things really propelled me. My wife and I had watched, it's probably a three or four-year-old documentary that Robert Reich did um, when he was teaching at Cal, he still is, and... You know, he was talking about trickle down doesn't work. Yep. You know, going up, building the middle class so people have more money to spend. That's what builds an economy and helps everyone. And so we watched that, made all kinds of sense. Trickle down has never made any sense to me whatsoever. Like this idea that they're going to create jobs up here. Like I know I've never even run a business, but... If I run a restaurant, the only reason I'm going to hire more waiters or waitresses is I have more customers. Like you can give me a tax break and put another hundred thousand in my pocket. I'm not going out to hire anybody. I'm not going to hire some more no. people unless I have I'm customers. I'm not going to hire right. somebody if I have the need to hire them. So Robert Reich made sense to me. If now I have more customers in my restaurant, I do better. I hire more people, they do better, and so. I watched that. That made a lot of sense. I learned a lot from that. And then, I mean, within months, if, if not even weeks after watching that, you're on stage talking about universal basic income, which that idea goes exactly with that, putting more money in people's pockets. And so I will say that's a more recent thing to me um, within the last year of saying, 
wow, this makes a lot of sense. It's it's not only more humane, fairer to people in our society, but to me, that helps everybody, including the people at the top. Yep. Yeah, if, if you're running a business, you know what you need? You need customers with money to show up, uh, you know? And if you're in an environment right now where everyone is being sent home, uh, like, it's, like who are you going to profit from? You know, <laughs> like you, you look outside. We can't all be Amazon, you know? I guess Amazon's still doing all right. Uh, so uh, so this is the trickle-up economy. And I, I saw the same documentary you saw by um, with uh, Robert Reich. And um, he's been a very powerful and consistent voice in this direction, keeps on writing books, keeps on pounding the table, making the case. Um, uh, and the economy's just gotten more and more extreme over time. Uh, it was the most extreme winner take all economy in the history of the world pre pandemic. And then the pandemic just uh, turned everything uh, up to 11. Like it just sped everything up. Well, and here in central Florida, we have felt it about as much as anybody because you know, we don't have a lot of business here. I mean, it's a tourism business and we're in the service, you know, it's a service economy. So we got a lot of people working low wage jobs here. We have the biggest affordable housing crisis in the United States um, because we're playing, we're paying people 10, 12, $15 an hour and that's it. And there's, there's no upward mobility when you're running a ride at Disney World, you know? And so we can make our unemployment numbers look okay, but those are not high paying jobs. And then when people quit traveling and quit yep. going to those things in a pandemic, I mean, it has really, really been bad. Um, I know the local, the biggest local food shelter uh, in the area has you know, been doing about triple the number of meals that they normally do. Uh, it, it's been really, really rough. And it hasn't been, you know, you would you would think, I mean, for everybody, this pandemic's been rough. But you would think when you go through a crisis that it should be shared. It should be a shared grief and a shared adversity. And that's not the way it's been, you know. Bernie Sanders tweets, tweets out, you know, one of your former opponents, like at least every other day tweets out how much some of these billionaires have made during the pandemic. And, you know, their net worth is going up and we've got all these people who can't eat. And that led to your tweet today, which is my favorite and will probably be going up on a sign in my room when I can get the calligraphy done about, you know, and I'm not reading the quote right now, but imagine having the wherewithal to, you know, solve people's problems and then you don't do it. I, you know, it, it's, I can't solve the problems that Jeff Bezos can solve, but I've been lucky enough. I can solve a few people's problems and you have to do it. I, I love that tweet. I've sent it to, I retweeted it, but if people not on Twitter, I was sending it out to, to everybody today. Um, and, and I think, that's where it should be. We should really be a community, a community of people who are helping others. Um, but we can't help. We can't count on charity. That's why, to me, UBI and things like that, like we can't depend on charity. We need systems in place that will help people through this. So. 
Well, you know, one of the reasons why I think that there's something universal about sports and there's something universal about coaching where you form a community with your team. You know, you're part of a group, you're on this together. Uh, and then you naturally want the same kind of thing for our country. When you're going through a hard time, it's not like the team's going through a hard time and you just start, start ignoring people or singling people out or just like pretend some people don't exist. It's like, okay, who's uh, who's on the team? Like, you know, let's come together. Uh, and here in America, uh, we have to all get on the same team, really. Like that, there's just too many problems that uh, are facing folks for us to just continue all of the, the strange uh, uh, strange trend of just everyone blaming the other side for everything, uh, for turning on each other and singling each other out. Uh, it's it's painful for me too, Stan. Like it's painful for me to see our, our country go through this time and um, have all these self inflicted wounds. Really, you know, it's like like this would be a very rough time even if we did everything right. And I would say that for most of us looking at it from the outside. The NBA was an incredibly high functioning organization and did just about everything it could do right, right um, at, at the bubble. And then it's in the sharp contrast to most of our other institutions where everyone's looking around being like, who's supposed to be running the show? Who's supposed to be leading this? Uh, the federal government um, like, has not been leading, uh, you know? And, and I think you're a coach, you're like a leader of men, you're a community builder. Uh, it's, I think it's one of the reasons why people love sports, love the NBA, is that there's something very human about that. Uh, and it feels like that's what the country needs right now. Yeah, I, I, to me, and I'm sure to you too, because I've heard you speak a lot. Um, the most frustrating thing is we have the wealth in this country. We have the resources to do this and to take care of all of our people. Now, there's countries in the world that are very, very poor and don't have the wherewithal to take care of the problems in their country. We have the wealth to do that. And yes, we, we just do. don't have the systems in place and we don't have the will or to make the sacrifice to make this a more equal society where everybody can share in this. And that's what frustrates me. If it was a shared experience and we just don't have the money to help people, we do. We have we the money do. to do it. We, everyone knows it now too, Stan. When I was running for president, people would be like, oh, like how do we pay for that? And then we just watch... Uh, our Congress write a $2.2 trillion check mainly to the, like, the biggest co companies. And then you're just like, oh, we could have done this the whole time. You know you can do it. I mean, you can do universal basic income. You can do Medicare for all or some form of universal health care. You know, whatever's best. I'm not a, I've said to people like, I, I'm not, I'm not as smart as you or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, and I haven't gotten as deep into that. Um, but those possibilities are out there and why we would choose as a wealthy country to have the levels of poverty we have, to have the number of people without health care and without health insurance that we have is just mind boggling to me. And it's a failure in our moral character in our country. And, and there's no other way to put that. I mean, you just, you can't sugarcoat that. You have the resources to take care of these problems. You refuse to do it. Your moral character is lacking. I'm, I'm not, like, that's not a partisan thing. That's, 
That's just the truth. Yeah, and uh, it should be apolitical too, Stan. It should just be human. Uh, and um, unfortunately, right now, our politics has become uh, inseparable from uh, from the media narratives, uh, from, frankly, the corporate interests, because so many of our politicians just have very, very rich corporate interests whispering in their ear all the time. Um, I'd love to, to change it. I think we have a chance to change it uh, in some measure after Trump is out and Joe and Kamala are, are in. I believe some very big things will be on the table. And really then the challenge is going to be, can we get enough done in, let's call it four years, uh, that people feel like we have genuinely started to come together and rebuild that trust, not based upon statements, but upon actually improving people's day-to-day lives and, and reality. Like that, that to me is going to be the challenge over the next number of years, because if we fail in that, then people's mistrust and that, that disintegration of uh, the sense of community is just going to accelerate as well. I feel like we have a window of opportunity here that we have to take full advantage of. Um, I may play a role in that, uh, but that's that's where my head so. is going now. Yeah, and as you know, I mean, I, I think people are realistic. We're not going to solve all the problems within a within a four year term, but I think we can start to solve them. And I think we can show people in very concrete terms, like you say, not in statements, but in things getting done. We can show people the possibilities of what a better society could look like for everybody in this country. And we could set a direction of starting to get there. Um, That to me is what can happen. And that takes concrete things. It's not just statements, but we start to turn around and we get more money in people's pocket um, heading toward hopefully at least some form of universal basic income. And at least we start working toward getting more people health insurance and, you know, all of these problems. Are we going to get it turned 180 degrees in in four years? No, that's not realistic. But can you turn it 60 degrees, 70 degrees and give people the feeling we're on the right track? We can do these things. We have the resources. We have the leadership. We can do these things. That's what I'm hoping will happen over the next four years. I'm not, I'm not expecting Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, people like you, I hope, in the administration. That's a great hope for us. I'm not expecting like, hey, they took over January of 21 and it's February now. Yep, we've got it all. I got my universal oh, basic no. income check and we're ready to go. Yeah, even if we do everything right, you're right that a lot of it's going to be, have we made headway? Have we made progress? And it's a little bit like if you take over a team, you're not going to turn around being like, we're going to be champions. That's right. <laughs> like, like, like this year, it's like, look, give me a few years and hopefully we'll have a direction, we'll have a culture, we'll have a sense of trust, a uh, sense of confidence. Um, that That's certainly uh, my vision for the next number of years. Uh, well, Stan... Uh, such a pleasure connecting with you and a privilege. I've been an admirer of uh, you and your work for a long time. Um, you're a force for good, a force for community, a uh, force for progress in our country. And I'm looking forward to finding ways that we can work together. One of my dreams is that uh, is that universal basic income takes root in communities around the country. And I think that people like you are going to be a big part of it. I would love to help you in any way. I mean, I, I think that, you know, 
my big biggest issue has just been justice and equality in every area, racial justice, you know, um, women's rights, uh, you know, LGBTQ rights, but economic justice is one that just cuts across all of those and for everybody and makes a true difference in people's lives. And so if you ever need my help, even in a small way, I would be, I would be happy to get on board because I think you've shown us a blueprint. Now we just have to have the uh, political will and courage to, uh, to give it a shot. Well, thank you, Stan. 